This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Please welcome uh, the CEO of the AODC, uh, filmmaker Andrew Wiseman. And hopefully now through the uh, the magic of technology, we will have Kirsten Thompson, the filmmaker. I can see you. You're wearing shorts, which I find wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I'm James Hewison. We haven't uh, we haven't met in person or via Skype. And this is uh, Andrew Wiseman. Andrew is the um, Andrew is a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, very renowned Australian documentary filmmaker, and he's the the CEO of the Australian International Documentary Conference, which begins here at Acme in uh, just over a week. I'm very honoured that both of you are there, and I really do want to listen to you talk. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might, uh, uh, at least in part, defeat the purpose, but. Um, we uh, well, thank you very much for making yourself available. Understanding that it's uh, one o'clock in the morning uh, over there in Los Angeles, uh, and look, what what we'd like to do, Kirsten, is we've got uh, uh, obviously an audience here who have just seen your uh, very moving film, and uh, so Andrew and I, Andrew and I, are going to ask you a couple of questions, and then the audience will have an opportunity to do uh, to do so as well. Uh, but look, if I if I may begin, I guess, and and probably the most obvious uh, of questions. Uh, which is what were the circumstances um, that made you determined to make this film, uh, this uh, this uh, this memoir? Yeah, well, you know, it was not an idea. Um, this film basically grew out of a loss. Um, I was trying to make a film in Afghanistan. Are you guys hearing me fine? Absolutely, yes, perfectly. Okay, great. Um, and so I worked on a film in Afghanistan from 2009 until 2012. Um, shooting with a couple of teenagers. And when I showed them the virtually finished film, the young woman in the film said she was too afraid to be in the movie. And um, I just you know, knew I had to honor that. And that film collapsed. And then in the effort to try to figure out how to you know, do something with the footage and to, to rebuild Home, I started thinking a lot about the ethical conundrums of being a documentary camera person. And so it just started to bubble out of that film's collapse. And, uh, but to make a memoir nonetheless uh, comprised of, of so many kind of fragments, uh, what, what made you de- determine to make the film in this particular form? Yeah, well, for quite a while we struggled. I thought I was making a film only with footage in Afghanistan. And I went to the Sundance Labs um, in this effort to rebuild the film. And I'd done a voiceover and tried to sound like Chris Marker. And, you know, in that uh, moment of showing that that Chris Marker wannabe film to a group of people there, they all said, oh, you know, this is really pretentious. (laughs) And... uh, and I, I, for some reason, I was inspired to tell the story of um, filming the truck that dragged James Byrd Jr. to his death. And when I told that story, everyone was sort of knocked out. And they said, do you have more stories like this? And I said, oh, yeah, I got a lot more stories like this. And so we initially conceived of making a film 
with me doing all kinds of voiceover telling stories from all over the world while looking at footage from Afghanistan. So, so virtually sort of the polar opposite of this film. But um, I, I, you know, once I told the story of um, filming the truck, I started to doubt myself um, and wonder whether I really remembered things accurately. So I, I reached out to the director to look at the footage and then I discovered that incredible footage um, of Guy James Gray, the prosecutor, and what he's saying about the, the book of photos. And for me, this touched on something that's so core to where I'm at right now as a camera person. You know, what do we do about the, you know, our desire to create indelible images and yet, um, you know, showing the violence of, that happens to other people. So that set me off on searching to see other footage that I had shot. Uh, Kirsten, uh, first of all, congratulations. I thought it was a, a beautifully constructed uh, film. Uh, very, very moving, very authentic. Uh, it, it seemed to me it was sort of like a, uh, an intimate masterclass uh, over uh, however many films are represented uh, in the film. I think it's 24 or 25 film, uh, films mm. I saw on the credits. Uh, I'd like to know what sort of criteria you adopted when you were selecting footage uh, to mm. include because I, I can't imagine the number of hours that were available to you. And yeah. uh, even in a, a less conventional film, that might be some form of script or outline. But uh, I'd like to know what sort of criteria you began with. Yeah, well, a great question from a great documentary filmmaker. I have such respect for your work. Um, you know, what we decided sort of over the period of um, about a year of me reaching out to directors and, and looking, specifically asking for footage that had really stuck with me and some of it obviously had really haunted me, like the Nigeria maternity ward footage, um, I would really come to this idea um, with Nels Bangreder, the wonderful editor, um, of doing it with no voiceover. And that choice um, meant that then we really, it, it sort of boiled down some of the footage to what, what was the footage where the questions were intrinsic in the footage. They didn't need any explaining. It just played itself out in the footage. And, um, and then, you know, I think like say the question of intervention, does one intervene in the moment with the kids with the ax? I had many, 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 many different examples of moments that I could have intervened. Um, but that was the one that most, um, uh, strongly communicated the, the fact that sort of ethical decisions happen in an almost moment by moment basis. So, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's not fine. No, oh, it's fine. No, it's fine. You know, like that sort of stutter step of ethics. Um, so we were always looking for the footage that could embody the most possible within itself. Um, and, and there were some really hard choices because we sort of decided, yes, it was in a way a masterclass. We had to teach people um, what it's like to be a camera person, give them access to what that is. Um, but once, once people had learned a certain thing, like, oh, this is how you frame and set up and look for B-roll, you didn't need to show them that anymore. You need to look for other things to show. So it was, it was, a, it was a way we would sort of weigh footage against each other to see how much, how much something that could happen be contained in one set of footage. I, I really liked the voices behind the camera, and they seemed so natural. Obviously, um, a lot of the time it was your voice, but these disembodied voices seemed to lead me through the footage and gave me an insight into the sort of choices you were making at any given point. 
allied with actually seeing the camera move uh, from one position to another and you could feel the, the camera person behind the lens trying to make those decisions. And then you made a, a reference uh, in that answer to the ethical conundrums uh, that uh, a camera person, a film team face along the way. And I was looking at the, your director's statement as part of the website and you list a whole range of ethical questions that uh, most <laughs> filmmakers face. So I, I'm wondering in looking at a lot of these outtakes as you have in editing this particular piece, do you think it will influence the camera work you'll do from this point on? Was there anything in the footage that surprised you on seeing it as it was a second time around? You know, I think um, the, I don't know yet. You know, I'm, I've just shot uh, only a little bit since uh, finishing this film. But my, my gut is the big thing that's going to change is which projects I choose to do. Um, because there's some structural setups that you get into that you can't win at. Um, and I've learned that over time. Um, but I do think that, that what the demands of camera work are so much about being in the present um, that, you know, I think I've always been a, a camera person who who's tried to, to understand what's going on, to be decent to people, to search for, you know, a beautiful image, to search for an image that corresponds to the film I'm making. But um, I think in many ways, the ethical conundrums are, are they are um, implicit in the work. And I guess the one thing I feel like I've learned out of this is empathy is not enough. Um, and so that sort of if you are going into a situation where there's, some kind of structural or systemic imbalance that's in place that can't be countered. Um, if there's some way in which, you know, your representation of other people is, is flowing straight into racism or flowing straight into classism in a certain kind of way, it doesn't matter how empathetic you are to people. You are re-perpetuating certain kinds of, of systemic problems. So, so I feel aware of those things, but I also think in many ways, like, you, there's certain things you can do as a camera person, other things you can do as a director. And, um, and in many ways, um, I think for much of my career, I've been doing as much as I can as a camera person, and I wouldn't change my camera work too much um, having done this film. Perhaps uh, further to, to Andrew's question and indeed your response, to just get a, a clearer fix if that's possible, uh, Kirsten, in terms of the decision-making process, which is to, which is obviously at least in part what the film is exploring and revealing. Uh, how do you determine where not to put the camera? Uh, indeed, yeah. to, to to look away, which of course yeah. it, it's it's often well, sometimes what is what is not shown that is is the most significant is the most significant and the most poignant and the most important, and and therefore I guess that. Speaking of ethical dilemmas, uh, determining what is intimacy and can be shown, uh, and ultimately what is what is voyeurism, where the camera uh, and the gaze therefore reduces its subject to to simply an object. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you an example of um, I was filming with uh, the parents of Jordan Davis, who was a young um, African American teenager who was you know sort of shot point blank by a stranger into his car because he was playing music too loudly um, in Florida. And we filmed with the parents 
probably just six months after he'd been killed. It was really raw and really fresh. And they were meeting with their lawyer in the lobby of a Washington, D.C. hotel. And it was, you know, meeting for the first time with a lawyer. And um, we were filming the conversation. And I saw um, Jordan's mother start to smooth her napkin. And she just started smoothing the napkin harder and harder. And then she started folding the napkin. And without asking the director, I um, just interrupted her and said, would you like to take a break? Um, and she said, oh, yes. And she you know, disappeared into the bathroom for probably a half an hour and reemerged and hugged me and sat back down and um, started filming again. Now, you could say I was a terribly empathetic camera person because I saw that she was about to burst into tears and that... Um, you know, that was a certain voyeurism to, you know, watch the, the mother of a murdered son fall apart in a public place where she didn't want to right after her son had died. Um, you know, I certainly do think, you know, I, I, I was thinking about her feelings. Um, I was also, I made a choice. Um, I didn't, I made a choice that the, uh, the director, the director didn't even understand what had happened. And I didn't tell the director because I wasn't sure I trusted the director to stop. Um, but it was also a calculated choice in a certain way. It was a way of gaining trust with the mother because, um, you know, if I had let her fall apart there and I filmed her, I knew that it would have been really felt really terrible to her. And perhaps she wouldn't have let us uh, continue to film. So I think this is the kind of thing I want to talk about in Camera Person is the ways in which, you know, you can come off as being this really generous, ethical person, but you're also thinking about the future of the film. You're making all kinds of calculations and saying, like, we are here to make a film. We're making choices around this. So these things are all very tangled up in each other. You've said, uh, perhaps further to that point too, uh, Kirsten, you said that filming your mother uh, was an act of betrayal. What, what what do you mean by that? Well, my mom comes from an era, I mean, some of us are old enough to remember a time when people weren't used to being filmed. And if they were going to be filmed, maybe they'd be filmed only once. So being filmed was this um, really um, sort of uh, like, a, like some kind of a jewel, and it would be your image forever, and there'd be nothing else. And so that that you know, almost like a sort of a daguerreotype or something, people really worried about the one time that they would be filmed. And, and certainly my mother didn't want to be filmed um, even as a healthy person, because I think she was too worried about what image she would project and could she project the image that she wanted to. So I really knew, knowing that she already in her healthy state didn't want to be filmed, I knew very much that she didn't want to be filmed um, in her illness. And I really filmed her for myself um, because I knew she was so close to dying. And I imagined that I would never really look at the footage again or show it to anyone. Um, and I know that the mom that I know, like there's ways in which she would love this portrait and other ways in which she would just, you know, absolutely refuse it. Um, but I think both, by showing her and the children, it's implicit that I, I don't have their permission. I don't have the permission of someone with Alzheimer's to film. I don't have the permission of a child to film them. Um, they don't, you know, they don't understand the consequences of it. 
But in some ways, I raise the question, do any of us understand the consequences of it? And do any of us own our own image and sort of what can become of it in the world? And I think now all of us are much more engaged in these questions than we ever have been in human history, um, because there's so many images and so much filming of all of us going on. Kirsten, I love the modulation in the film, the balance between a range of elements, between the, the close-ups and the, the statics and the wide shots, and also the balance between the, the length of the, the chapters or the episodes, some of which uh, seem to me to be have self-contained story arcs, sometimes in just one shot. And then as the film progressed, for me, there was an overarching personal story thread that was emerging uh, in relation to your uh, your family. I'm wondering if that was part of a plan at the beginning in terms of uh, story uh, or, mm. or at what point that emerged in the editing process? Well, I mean, before we got to this edit where we were doing no voiceover, I went through a period where I, I started more and more obsessively reaching out for material that had really traumatized me. And what I, you know, I am so interested in how the brain compartmentalizes and how it holds on to experiences or forgets them. And um, what I was discovering was that I would reach out for footage, watch it, spend a lot of time with it. And then sort of once we would cut it into a scene, I would remember something else. And so what I started to realize was there was more and more material buried inside of me. And so that experience of having um, it sort of creep up on me that I was in fact quite profoundly impacted by all the traumatic stories I had heard, we wanted to uh, create that in the viewer. So, you know, you're sort of gamely traveling around the world and saying like, ah, it's so fantastic to be a documentary filmmaker, you get to go everywhere. And then you're like all of a sudden, whoop, wow, we just heard one more really rough story. Uh, you know, let, let there be no more. And of course, there are more. Given the uh, obviously a substantial body of work behind you now uh, and a, a remarkable list of directors with whom you've worked, can you um, perhaps describe a little uh, the role as a collaborator with some of those directors from, for example, Laura Protras to... to uh, to Michael Moore, how much how much freedom did they grant you? Uh, uh, it was it was extraordinary. I mean, Michael Moore said, "Use anything you want." Laura gave me her hard drives. Um, you know, it was it was interesting. It was in the two cases of I would say the most traumatic material, the maternity ward and the James Bird footage, that I had really long discussions with um, the directors involved about how we might use it. Was there enough context? And I think. In many ways, because you know, both of those situations are utterly impossible conundrums. You know, there's sort of there's no, they are so problematic on so many levels that I think all of us struggled with how we might use the footage. And um, I showed all of those directors different cuts and talked about it. And then, you know, in the end, um, both the directors of um, Two Towns of Jasper. And um, Don Shapiro, who shot the maternity ward footage, said, you know, whatever you choose to do, having had all those long discussions, they trusted me to move forward. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was actually really gratifying that the directors gave me as much carte blanche as they did. Um, and it was really profound. Um, Michael Moore saw the film for the first time at Sheffield 
and he'd never he he didn't know what I'd used in the film, and he'd completely forgotten the promises he'd made to Abdul. Um, and then Abdul saw it um, for the first time shortly after that, and he realized that he made the decision to not go back to Iraq in the middle of the sentence. Um, where he sort of pauses and then he makes the decision and you know, he said that was the most profound decision of my life and I and and I we didn't know that he'd made that neither Michael nor I knew that he'd made that decision in that moment but the thing that really compelled me always emotionally was the way he bit his lip at the end of the scene I was like wow something really big just happened and basically in that moment he had just decided to be you know to risk doing a court martial or bull offense you know um, when I saw that in him in his body. Uh, perhaps uh, one last question or two from uh, myself and Andrew before we give the audience a, a chance to uh, to, answer, to ask their own questions. But uh, quite clearly, if I can say so, that you consider uh, working in cinema a form of activism. Is is camera is camera person a form of activism? Activism too. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. I, I don't call myself an activist, but I'm certainly, I, I'm active. <laughs> I do move around. Um, yeah, no, I feel like it's really um, critically important to make as complex work as possible um, because I think the current state of the world, the state of being a human has uh, certainly always been uh, beyond our capacity to understand complex. And um, I do see it great tendency um, towards simplification and um, I'm not so interested in simplification so I'm an activist around complexity <laughs> and I'm also you know, a lover of cinema history and I think a lot of things we, we, we have made things um, that we shouldn't forget um, and we have audiences who understand really complex cinema language Kirsten, just picking up on that notion of uh, cinema history, I think there are linkages between uh, great camera people across time. Uh, just uh. quickly, I produced a, uh, a drama, a telly movie, a number of years ago about an Australian uh, cameraman, Damien Perra, who uh, was a World War II uh, cameraman. Uh, he made a, a short documentary called Kokoda Frontline, which actually won Australia's first Oscar in 1943. And he made a number of points. He said uh, one of the reasons he wanted to take footage, uh, particularly in uh, Papua New Guinea, was to shake the Australian population out of what he believed was their complacency about the horrors of war. And then further to that, he said in order to do that, he needed to get in front of the troops and look back into their eyes and in doing so putting himself in harm's way. To what extent do you think uh, camera people working in difficult situations uh, sometimes war situations, but but other areas of conflict have to be conscious of their own bravery, both in the obvious sense of the word, but in confronting difficult topics. Oh well, one I'd love to see the movie, so you'll have to send me a link to that if you please. Um, and you know, with all great respect to camera people who put themselves in physical danger like that, and and I think. You know, what he's talking about, sort of the point of view of the camera, if it is positioned in front of soldiers and can see soldiers' eyes. And, you know, perhaps as an Australian camera person, he is 
he can stand there and not be shot, or perhaps he could be shot differently. If the camera person was from Papua New Guinea, they might not be able to stand in that same position. Um, you know, I do think sort of there are relationships of power that, that make it possible to stand in different places or not stand in those places. Um, and, you know, another thing that you make me think about is how much of the history of cinema is connected to the history of war and the military. And I know early on in my career, I didn't feel like um, I was credible as a camera person until I had filmed in conflict zones. And in many ways, um, what I came to over time was realizing um, the way in which we have um, created a simplified um, relationship to sort of what violence and conflict is and what heroism is. And in many ways, after looking, you know, at filming several films about maternal health and, you know, filming in some of like, you know, the most under-resourced um, hospitals in the world where young women are dying and babies are dying, I came to think of uh, maternity wards as war zones. And I thought about that in terms of the world and sort of the, you know, the uh, misogyny or the history of discrimination that says that we don't, the, the sort of valuing of deaths, the certain hierarchy um, and certain people's deaths um, is less valued or honored. And so that, you know, pretty much if I would say, oh, I've been filming in a maternity ward, people would say, ooh. And if people said, you know, I've been filming in the war zone, people would say, wow, tell me, you know, what happened, you know, what was the riskiest thing you did? Um, when in fact, I would say that you know, sort of the greatest um, damage to myself was done um, filming, you know, the deaths of children um, in maternity wards. Uh, we've now got a little bit of time, Kirsten, uh, for the audience, uh, of which there are at least, I would say, two and a half thousand people here. <laughs> Uh, escaping uh, the the Melbourne heat. Uh, if someone's got a question, perhaps raise your hand and uh, so you can use the microphone to ask a question of Kirsten. So, gentlemen, right here. So, just bear with us, Kirsten, please. No problem. Hi. Um, I said a question about one of the scenes in the film. Um, I think it might, I'm not sure if it was you that said it, but you were just talking about how you look at people in the eye when you're filming them at times. Um, and I guess it seemed as though there were scenes in the film that perhaps the first one with the Bosnian man on the road that kind of consisted of something like that where you may have maybe that's the kind of thing that takes you from like a moment of nothing to a moment of something. Um, yes. I don't know if you were able to speak about that, especially with people that you can't actually speak with, like communicate their language, how much that kind of means in terms of your, the way you shoot and the way you capture people. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, and you know, sometimes that that it's impossible to have that moment of contact. But uh, yeah, that's you. Thank you for um, seeing that. Uh, and um, you know, I, I think I can read what's going on in people's eyes. And sometimes I'm just you know wildly wrong about it. So I've you know had moments where I thought in the exchange of eyes, I you know someone was on board to be filmed and suddenly they're sucking their teeth and turning their back to me, you know, so so it's still this search to understand what's going on inside someone else. And the thing that camera can do that's hard to do as a human um, 
is if you are with a camera and you have a long lens, you can look deeply into someone's eyes when they are, you know, they, they're, they're not guarded in the way that they would be if you were right up next to them looking into their eyes. So you can see things in their eyes with a camera that you, you can't see as a person unless you're extremely intimate with them. Another question for Kristen. One of the, my favorite pieces is a very short piece about uh, watermelons in, uh, yeah. in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it was, and it, uh, I liked it because it seemed to have all the beats of a story structure in this, this short, short piece, uh, mm. which alludes to what I was saying before about how I find that some of the chapters had built in uh, storylines and then others you reprise, you come back to particular stories. So again, at an editing level, I was just wondering whether you made conscious decisions at the beginning of the editing process or towards the end to have a balance of very short stories and sort of medium-sized stories and then an overarching one, or is it more of a, a rhythmic uh, consideration? It was definitely more of a rhythmic thing. And, you know, that watermelon story is hilarious because um, in many ways, why it's cut the way it's cut is that it was wildly mistranslated um, for a very long time. And for so for a very long time, we believed that the soldier was saying, fuck you to me. Um, and uh, so so we had cut it around that sort of final end and um, included it in the film. People had watched it that way. And then um, we had a woman who came from the northern region of Afghanistan see it, and she was like, he's not saying fuck you. He's saying enjoy the watermelon. And that just, it, that just killed me because that is like the story of my life as a camera person, you know, where you just um, you think you get it and you don't get it and you think you can read body language so that so that, that person's body language and what he's yelling could we could be see it with a subtitle that said fuck you or see it with a subtitle that says enjoy the watermelon and um you know that in many ways to me conveys the incredible power we have as filmmakers when we edit and when we put subtitles up and a lot of times we're misrepresenting people it's a lovely story uh, i also like the moment uh, i think it's in the first third where the philosopher derrida if I'm saying that correctly, uh, yeah. he said because you nearly fall in a uh, pothole or something, and he makes yeah. the point that philosophers sometimes look at the stars but can't see directly what's in front of them. And I think he said you see everything but are totally blind at the same time. I just wonder if you'd like to talk to that for a moment. Do you think with a camera lens that allows you to see more clearly or sometimes can the lens be obfuscate as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the camera can do so many things. Um, I definitely feel like you can see differently with a camera, but once you are seen with a camera, you are seen towards the creation of a film. You're searching for a film. And this desire to sort of create a narrative or see a narrative or follow a narrative can completely blind you to what's actually happening. And, you know, in many ways, the footage with the baby, I really wanted a happy ending. I wanted that baby to survive. So I kept filming because it wasn't happening. In my mind, in some ways, like in, and in my naive say about, you know, medicine in lots of ways, I didn't hear, oh, that baby needs oxygen. Let me keep filming and everything's going to be all right. 
Time for one last question. Yes, uh, Mr. Hanson. Thanks, uh, Kirsten. <clears throat> I think it's, it's interesting, the structure of the film. It's almost ironic that it's a linear film. It's 102 minutes, and, mm -hmm. and yet it's modular, so it's broken up into so many chapters. The use of Derrida, the idea of deconstruction. So what other formats could this form, this film have been in? Ah, you know, that's a, that's a lovely question. You know, there was a period of time when I really um, wanted to do installation pieces with it. You know, the, there's a very short um, section of following um, Witness X um, in the graveyard where she's going to look for her sons and her husband. And we followed her. It turned out we followed her walking through that cemetery for 37 minutes straight. Um, and, you know, I always sort of felt like, that needed to be a movie unto itself, um, you know. And um, we filmed the baby struggling for life over the course of 30 hours. Um, and so, you know, we contained that in a minute and a half and the way in which it became sort of infused with the level of drama that existed over the course of 30 hours was really interesting. I mean, we were unsatisfied to the very end with how we'd cut it. But then when we got into the sound mix, um, our wonderful sound mixer, Pete Horner at Skywalker basically said, you know, this, you don't understand from the very moment the baby is born that he's in trouble. And if we strip out the sound and we don't hear any cries, um, the audience will understand this um, immediately. And so, so we, by ripping out the sound, we um, sort of tried to find a way to translate this 30 hours of filming. Um, but yeah, there's always questions for me around duration and maybe physical or, you know, sort of, do you get immersed? Is the, is the, is the image that you're watching it on as big as real life? Is it bigger than real life? Does it surround you? All of those things that are tantalizing to me, but I love it that you think the film's linear. <laughs> Some people tell me it's structured like Alzheimer's, which isn't so linear. Uh, a quick question, uh, and then we'll have to finish up. Yes, this gentleman here. Uh, thanks, Kirsten. It was really beautiful. Um, I'm just wondering, you are, you approach your you work more like a director, it feels like. Do you ever, have you ever thought of becoming a director? Well, I, I think I am a director. <laughs> I think I am a director um, with this film. And um, I, uh, I love working with other directors. When I shoot, I consider myself a camera person and I consider myself one of the team who's making a film. Um, but in many ways, what I wanted to show is how everyone on the team is searching for the stories. So, you know, the drivers, the translators, the sound people, the fixers, everyone is trying to understand what is the narrative we are collectively searching for. And in many ways, those sort of additions that um, of perspective that come in, they, they shift the, the, the stream of what the narrative becomes. And I don't think we see much evidence of that in documentaries. We don't understand as viewers that that's what's happening. Um, so after having done it for so many years, I wanted to share with the world how um, much the presence of the camera person matters, how much the presence of the sound person matters, um, and that you don't understand how the sort of intermingling of perspectives and voices uh, changes the course of the narrative of the film you're watching. Thank you for doing it. <laughs> yeah.
my pleasure. I'm sorry that I was a little invisible tonight. Um, can, can I ask you a quick favor? I, I, since you're in Australia and you use language differently, I'm, I'm building this little vocabulary of um, words that are used around filming and trying to think about which words I want to change. Um, and so, you know, I'm interested in changing the use of shooting, for example, or capturing images. Um, uh, I changed camera, you know, cameraman to camera person. Um, but I'm curious if there's any language um, that you all use that I'm not familiar with around camera work. You call B-roll B-roll? I'm not aware of any great differences uh, in terms of the, the technical lingo that surrounds mm -hmm. uh, filming. Uh nothing immediately comes to mind. I mean, there's certain <laughs> Australian sayings that get used on set, but they're, they're not really to do with the the filmmaking process directly. Mm. There's nothing that immediately comes to mind. I bet you'll think of it once you get home. Oh, yes, there'll be something. There's something. There'll be well, something you know, very, very obvious. Yeah. Maybe because we use it all the time and we don't imagine yeah. it. Uh, others wouldn't. I'll give that some thought. I'm not sure if the audience or anything comes yeah. to mind there. But, uh, Recky, a recce for a reconnoiter. A recce, we, we, we take a recce, a recce mate. Truncate has that? Yeah. <laughs> and when you flush the toilet, the water goes around the other way to uh, the United that. States. Yeah, oh, you I've knew that already. That. Yeah, it's not directly related to filmmaking. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, it is very important. Yeah, critical in that respect. So, and obviously, a perfect way to uh, to say thank you very much for your time, <laughs> Kirsten. Uh, but uh, we're circling uh, the drain. Yeah. Uh, Please give uh, Kirsten Johnson a big Melbourne thank you. That, that was, that's a big crowd. Were there only men there? Only men asked questions. I'm just curious. <laughs> there, there are there are women here. Yes, but they. Um, Hooray! Hello, ladies. <laughs> okay. Cheers, Kristen. Thanks. Uh, cheers, thank Kristen. So Thanks much, very much. Everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Andrew, uh, for uh, co-presenting this and, of course, to the IADC, which begins in just over a week. And thank you to all of you. And I should also thank our doc play uh, as well as the, uh, the ACS for promoting this session. Thanks very much. Everybody have a good evening. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the ACME website. <laughs>